Oh, Larry Fitzgerald is a sexy man. Oh, 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 Larry. Oh, oh, Larry, you did it to me again last night. Oh, just so good. Just so good watching those fantasy points roll in across all teams. Except that one team. (laughs) That one team. Where I tilted and did not pick Larry Fitzgerald for some unknown reason. And then Evan Silva picked him with the very next pick. And I knew at that moment I made a catastrophic mistake. But thankfully, I own Larry Fitzgerald in every other fantasy league, including Dynasty. I'm reminded of one of the worst Dynasty trades I've ever seen. Rich Rebar in Kitchen Sink 3 traded a second round rookie pick for a 32-year-old Larry Fitzgerald. Oh, oof. Awful. In a dynasty context, we talk about this all the time. This youth-chasing virus that has infected the dynasty league community. And even the highest-profile members that are playing against Rich Rebar in Kitchen Sink 3 are susceptible to youth-chasing. Larry Fitzgerald for a second-round pick? What are you doing? And that is indefensible. The moment I saw someone trade away Larry Fitzgerald for a second-round pick early on in the 2015 season, I just scratched that person off my list of people I will ever listen to again about Dynasty League roster construction concepts and player evaluations. I said, like Dwayne Allen serves as the canary in the mineshaft in redraft leagues, allowing you to quickly identify which fantasy analysts are touting players based on nothing. When a transaction happens where a 32-year-old Hall of Fame wide receiver is traded for a second-round pick in Dynasty, that becomes an instant indicator that the person trading away Larry Fitzgerald is a youth collector destined to be in rebuilding mode into perpetuity. And the Dynasty owner, in this case, Rich Rebar, who goes out and acquires Larry Fitzgerald at the perfect moment, it's an indicator that that fantasy analyst has a sound lifetime value calculation system and roster construction methodology for Dynasty Leagues. And we're going to try to have Rich Rebar on the show. His wife is due next week, but we're going to try to have him on the Underworld pod anyway. He told me that he will dial in from the hospital to be on this show. So fingers crossed. We will hope to have Rich Rebar on the show next week, and we will ask him about what has become an infamous trade in Dynasty League circles. Because it's Larry Fitzgerald! This isn't Vincent Jackson! We're not talking about a Vincent Jackson-level talent. We're talking about a Larry Fitzgerald-level talent. When Larry Fitzgerald turns 33, it's not as noteworthy as when Vincent Jackson turns 33. Look at Larry Fitzgerald's age 33 stat line. Five touchdowns. Now compare it to a younger elite receiver, Brandon Marshall. Brandon Marshall has one touchdown. One less game, but four less touchdowns. 
And it's instructive to look at those two players' respective ADPs in redraft this year. Brandon Marshall being drafted at slot 15 on MyFantasyLeague.com. Larry Fitzgerald being drafted at slot 49.6 on MyFantasyLeague.com. Brandon Marshall was an early second round pick. Larry Fitzgerald was being drafted outside the first four rounds. Indefensible! In the fourth and fifth rounds, I was drafting Larry Fitzgerald over and over and over and over again because we had him in the top 20 overall wide receivers before the season for 2015. And every week he rises while every week Brandon Marshall falls. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. There you can see our full season rankings for the rest of the season. You can see our weekly rankings, of course, with projected points for week five. And you can also see our dynasty rankings. Playerprofiler.com is one of the few services that offers weekly, rest of season, and Dynasty League rankings all updated every week. But somehow Larry Fitzgerald was being drafted three rounds after Brandon Marshall, even though he's only six months older than Brandon Marshall. We've talked about this on numerous shows. I lament the arbitrary labeling systems that fantasy analysts create based on chronological age with no physiological evidence to support their age throttle. Drafting Brandon Marshall as if he's in his prime while discounting Larry Fitzgerald as if he's in the final year of his career was illogical. Do you know how many fast twitch muscle fibers are left in Larry Fitzgerald's lower body? No! Do you know how many fast twitch muscle fibers are left in Brandon Marshall's lower body? No! So what makes you believe that Brandon Marshall can play at the highest level at age 32 while also believing Larry Fitzgerald will play at a degraded level at age 33? It's just baseless, arbitrary analysis. And a savvy fantasy gamer like Rich Rebar is adept at taking advantage of the baseless, arbitrary valuation systems that you so often see both in redraft and in dynasty. Dynasty leaguers are the most guilty of the arbitrary discounting of older players and the arbitrary premiums they place on the young players. So none of us know exactly how explosive Larry Fitzgerald is at age 33 versus Brandon Marshall at age 32, but we do know a few things about Larry Fitzgerald in particular, right? We know Larry Fitzgerald wins with nuance, not with explosiveness. That's a checkmark in his favor as he ages. Larry Fitzgerald is essentially a bigger version of Antonio Brown. Someone asked me earlier in the week, how do you explain Antonio Brown's success? I said, well, Antonio Brown has average speed, above average agility, elite football instincts, elite hands, and one of the best quarterbacks in the league, and one of the best work ethics in the league. You put those together, you mix in a je ne sais quoi factor, something none of us can measure or quite understand, and you get Antonio Brown. Well, Antonio Brown is simply a smaller version of Larry Fitzgerald. Antonio Brown is going to play football at a high level well into his 30s, as will Larry Fitzgerald. This is something we've been saying for a long time. In the offseason, I co-host a podcast called The Sonic Truth Pod with Nate Liss. We identified Larry Fitzgerald as the number one target for Dynasty Leagues. Because you could get him for a second round rookie pick in Dynasty? 
for some reason, Larry Fitzgerald is not fully appreciated, and we can pinpoint why. Because Larry Fitzgerald suffered through an unprecedented three-year period of abysmal quarterback play and nagging lower body injuries. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com, or tweet us at rotounderworld. Glancing back through NFL history, can you identify another wide receiver that suffered through such an abhorrent stretch of quarterback play as Larry Fitzgerald did? Do you know who Ryan Lindley is? Go to the internet and look up Ryan Lindley. That was Larry Fitzgerald's quarterback once upon a time, and his inability to be a WR1 with Ryan Lindley at quarterback and nagging hamstring injuries is part of the reason why Larry Fitzgerald's fantasy value has been discounted year over year over year over year. Meanwhile, Larry Fitzgerald is a Hall of Famer. No one would dispute that. He's a Hall of Famer who famously takes care of his body better than any other wide receiver in the NFL. If you're a wide receiver and you want to rededicate yourself to the craft, where do you go? You go to the Larry Fitzgerald wide receiver camp. He has an off-season wide receiver camp named after him, and he's still an active wide receiver in the league. Think about that. It's not the Jerry Rice wide receiver camp. It's the Larry Fitzgerald wide receiver camp. How good does your work ethic be to start your own wide receiver camp in the offseason during the prime of your playing career? That player could be had in Dynasty Leagues at age 32 for a second-round rookie pick. I bring this up because Rich Rebar only plays against other fantasy football experts. I'm not referencing some random knucklehead league. I'm talking about serious dynasty leaguers were trading away Larry Fitzgerald a year ago for a second round rookie pick. I was stunned to see that trade executed. And every day that has gone by since, I remained equally as stunned. And I know what dynasty leaguers are thinking. Well, there's something called an age-based productivity curve, and the age apex for a wide receiver is 26 or 27 years old. Larry Fitzgerald has very little lifetime value left at age 33. Yes, I'm very familiar with the age-based productivity curve. I talk about it extensively in my book, The Dynasty Dominator. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash guides and download The Dynasty Dominator. And in that book, I frequently reference work by Rich Rebar on the age-based productivity curves for quarterbacks, wide receivers, tight ends, and running backs. And while it's true that the average wide receiver produces very little at age 33, Larry Fitzgerald's not an average wide receiver. Oh, Larry Fitzgerald's an outlier. How could we know that Larry Fitzgerald would remain this productive out to age 33? We did know. I understand the tyranny of outliers. I understand that using outliers to justify fantasy football roster decisions is typically a mistake. I understand how a range of outcomes work. Analytics is probabilities defining possibilities. You always want to think about players in a range of outcomes and not just look at the one outlier on the far end of the range and peg your projection for a player to the outlier. I understand that generally speaking, that's a mistake, but outliers do exist. And one of the ways you can be successful in fantasy football is to identify who the outliers are. Jerry Rice posted a 92 catch, 
1,200 yards season at age 40. It's possible. And NFL players are constantly leaving crumbs, clues about who they are and what their likelihood of being productive out to age 35 is. At age 34, Reggie Wayne posted 106 receptions for 1,355 yards. Because Reggie Wayne was famously dedicated to the craft of professional wide receiver. Dwayne Bowe is more athletic than Reggie Wayne, but Dwayne Bowe was out of the league at an age in which Reggie Wayne was posting 1,300-yard seasons. And Dwayne Bowe and Reggie Wayne were giving us clues about their future productivity. When you saw Dwayne Bowe get pulled over and get a DUI on his way to Sonic at 2 a.m., that was a clue. There is a Wayne versus Dwayne dichotomy in the NFL, and if you're paying attention, you can discern which players will produce out into their 30s and which won't. Are you a Wayne or are you a Dwayne? Are you more like Dwayne Bowe or are you more like Reggie Wayne? But Larry Fitzgerald's not merely like Reggie Wayne. Larry Fitzgerald's even more dedicated to his craft than Reggie Wayne is, which is hard to do. He can only do it because he's the most dedicated to his craft of any wide receiver in the NFL in the last decade. Larry Fitzgerald is a surefire Hall of Famer who famously takes care of his body better than any other wide receiver. He's obsessive compulsive about it. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He highly monitors his sugar intake. Tom Brady is the Larry Fitzgerald of the quarterback position. Tom Brady is the most obsessive compulsive about his strength and conditioning of any of the quarterbacks by far and away. The only time Tom Brady allows himself to consume even sugar is when he treats himself to avocado ice cream. That's his only indulgence. Think about that. He only consumes sugar on certain days that he allows himself to indulge in avocado ice cream. That kind of dedication is what is necessary if you want to play professional football at the highest level out to age 39 like Tom Brady is doing. How long will Larry Fitzgerald be a WR1 or WR2 in fantasy football? I have no idea. He will be this year and he probably will be next year. Would you doubt Larry Fitzgerald at this point? I guarantee that every single Dynasty League player who traded away Larry Fitzgerald in the last five years would undo the trade they executed. Every single one. Larry Fitzgerald is particularly obsessed with the strength of his lower body because he suffered through hamstring injuries earlier in his career, and that's where his explosiveness comes from. Larry Fitzgerald's gluteus maximus is the best gluteus maximus in the league. He's got the best butt I've ever seen. It's a bubble butt. It's the perfect ass. We had Liz Loza from Yahoo Fantasy on the show. We talked about Larry Fitzgerald's ass in detail. The reason why it was a topic of conversation is because Larry Fitzgerald was interviewed earlier in the year and he talked about walking into malls and old women who just don't care anymore would just approach him and squeeze his ass without asking, just to just violate his personal space. And they would walk away snickering. Larry Fitzgerald is standing in line at Jamba Juice and a 70-year-old woman is grabbing his ass. 
That's the kind of shape that Larry Fitzgerald's in. And you're doubting he's going to be an elite receiver at age 33? Child, please. Love Larry Fitzgerald. God, I wish I had his ass. Woof. Another player that has a nice ass is DeAndre Washington. I'm making that up. I have no idea. But I would imagine that a 22-year-old running back with a low BMI, great agility score, I would imagine DeAndre Washington has a great ass. Just speculating. Some breaking news. DeAndre Washington is going to start this week. Adam Schefter is reporting Latavius Murray is doubtful to play this Sunday with a toe strain. Is it turf toe? Is it a toe sprain? I don't know. He strained his toe. He's doubtful. The starter is going to be DeAndre Washington. But as soon as that's announced, in thunders Adam Kaplan. Oh, you can always count on the ESPN fantasy analysts to thunder in to temper expectations. Yes, that's their job. That's their stated mission. Temper expectations. Adam Kaplan's reporting that the Raiders will deploy. Oh, no. No, don't say it, Adam. Don't say it. Please don't say it. Oh, he's going to say it. He said it. A running back by committee. Oh, no. So just don't pick up DeAndre Washington then? Just like I shouldn't be picking up Jarek McKinnon the week before, right? Yeah, right, right, right. What is the agenda at ESPN Fantasy? Are they going out of their way to help fantasy gamers avoid good players? I just don't understand why they've been deputized as the fantasy football joy police. Don't get too excited, people. Don't get too excited. Nothing to see here. Well, there is something to see here because no running back actually receives 100% of the opportunities in the NFL. None. Every backfield is a running back by committee. So when you police our joy by saying temper expectations of DeAndre Washington because it's going to be a running back by committee, the reason you're giving says nothing. Nothing. Of course it's a running back by committee. Who's out there thinking that DeAndre Washington is going to receive every target and every carry of the Oakland running backs? He's not. Jalen Richard is absolutely going to receive meaningful carries. In fact, if you go to the playerprofiler.com player rankings for week five, we have Jalen Richard at slot 37 because he's going against the San Diego defense, allowing over 10 fantasy points per game above the mean to opposing running backs. So we're mildly excited about Jalen Richard, but we're really excited about DeAndre Washington. And Adam Kaplan, the fantasy football joy vampire, can't suck the DeAndre Washington life force from my body as much as he wants to continue to tweet, RBBC, 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 RBBC. I'm unaffected. Sorry, Adam. I am standing in the sunlight. Your say-nothing fantasy analysis fangs cannot touch me out here in the sunlight. RBBC is an antiquated term. It has zero meaning in today's NFL. Of course, DeAndre Washington will be sharing a backfield with Jalen Richard, as most running backs share backfields in the NFL. But DeAndre Washington will be getting the majority of the touches, and if he breaks free for a touchdown, he'll have an RB1 fantasy week against the Chargers. The math is pretty straightforward here. You don't need to police my joy, Adam Kaplan, and potentially convince me not to start DeAndre Washington when everyone who owns DeAndre Washington should be starting DeAndre Washington this week. DeAndre Washington is only 204 pounds, 
but he runs a 4-4-9-40, that's 76th percentile, 11-23 agility score, above average. He's strong, 24 bench reps at 204, means he's incredibly strong, 79th percentile upper body strength, 124.4, 82nd percentile Spark X score on playerprofiler.com. He's an incredible athlete. He posted a 10% college target share at Texas Tech. Playing in a wide open spread attack, there's a lot of skill position players on the field at Texas Tech. So DeAndre Washington's 23.4 dominator rating wasn't impressive, but in the context of the offensive system in which he was operating, I'm more concerned about the other metrics. Yards per carry at Texas Tech, 6.4, 84th percentile. DeAndre Washington was one of the most exciting running backs to come out of college this year, and now he's one of the most exciting running backs in all of fantasy football. I mentioned he could break free for a long touchdown run. How do I know that? Well, he has a 13.6 breakaway rate on playerprofiler.com. It's a new metric measuring long runs per touch. 13.6%. That's number five in the NFL. He also has a 34.9 production premium. That's our situation agnostic efficiency metric. On any given down and distance, DeAndre Washington is outproducing almost every other running back in the NFL. That production premium, 34.9, is number six. So DeAndre Washington had an impressive prospect profile, and he's been efficient in four games so far as a rookie. And now DeAndre Washington, running behind one of the most impressive offensive lines in the sport, the Oakland Raiders offensive line, faces the second softest run defense against opposing fantasy running backs? Yeah, yes. This is where the value plays come from. Every week we have that one running back who's thrust into a starting job and his salary in across daily fantasy platforms is inordinately low. Think Spencer Ware in week one. There's a Spencer Ware every week. DeAndre Washington is him. If there's one player who's going to have a high ownership percentage, who is going to be difficult to get off, even in GPPs, it's DeAndre Washington this week. But feel free to continue to talk about how he's not going to receive every touch on Sunday. Continue to feed me that analysis, please. Please, please, continue. But where are the joy police with Golden Tate? Where were the fantasy analysts telling me, don't start Golden Tate in week one, week two, week three, week four? Where were you then? That's when I needed you, Adam Kaplan. But you were silent because you didn't know what was going to happen. I'm okay getting pulled over by the Joy Police if they're going to give me a warning telling me not to start Golden Tate. Thank you, officer. Appreciate that. But we're not getting that. And now Golden Tate is a contrarian play. So it's too late to give me a warning about Golden Tate because now Golden Tate's a contrarian play. Golden Tate could erupt this week. It could happen. He's a starting wide receiver with explosive athleticism. <laughs> it could happen. This is the squeaky wheel game. I pay attention to very few narratives, but when the coach comes out and states publicly that they want to feed a high-profile skill position player the ball, I listen in those specific instances. The squeaky wheel game is real. Now, if they were trying to feed the ball to Marvin Jones, I would pay less attention to it because Marvin Jones plays the split end position. It's difficult to feed the ball out to a split end, particularly if he's being matched up against an efficient cornerback. But it's a lot less difficult to feed the ball to Golden Tate out of the flanker position 
the flanker position is less cornerback matchup dependent because a lot of times the flanker and the slot receiver run rub routes and they force a defense that's playing man coverage to switch. And after a couple of those rub routes are successful, what happens? The defensive coordinator switches to zone. That's why we have less of a discount factor for cornerback matchups with the flanker position than we do the split end position. The split end position is out by himself against oftentimes the team's number one cornerback. So in the case of the split end, measuring the efficiency of the cornerback he's matching up against has more relevance. So I'm playing Golden Tate over Pierre Garçon and Bryce Butler. I'm playing Golden Tate over almost every other possession receiver in the NFL because Golden Tate plays a possession role out of the flanker position for the Lions, but he has more explosive athleticism than someone like Pierre Garçon. So Golden Tate has more big playability. But there are a handful of possession receivers I cannot justify playing Golden Tate over. Number one, Sterling Shepard. The Giants-Packers game projects to be the highest scoring game of the week, and the Packers give up seven fantasy points per game above the mean to opposing wide receivers. So given the matchup and the implied points, I can't justify starting Golden Tate over a player like Sterling Shepard who has significantly more situational upside. The other possession receiver I can't justify starting Golden Tate over is Eddie Royal. I was incredibly excited about the prospects of starting my man, Eddie Royal, this weekend. I like Eddie Royal. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry I like Eddie Royal. But we have breaking news. Eddie Royal missed practice on Thursday with a strained calf. Oh, God. Eddie! He does this to me every year. Flashes an explosive week and then shows up on the injury report. It's like clockwork. You can always count on Eddie Royal to flash an explosive week and immediately injure himself in the process. And one of my great frustrations is the need to monitor who's practicing throughout the week. Think about what a waste of time that is. So much collective brain power devoted to speculating whether or not hurt players will play on Sunday. This is one of my perpetual exasperations with the sport of football. The game day decision needs to be abolished. I own Julius Thomas in a handful of dynasty leagues. I've owned him for years. And I started him last week because he was a last minute inactive and his game started at 9.30 Eastern. So of course... I inadvertently started Julius Thomas, and in one of the matchups, I lost it because I started a zero in Julius Thomas. That's frustrating. We've come on and talked about the notion of pain tolerance in the NFL. The fact that a doctor can look at an MRI and stare a player in the eyes and say, you should be out there. This is merely a pain tolerance issue. The law should allow that player to punch that doctor in the face. I despise the term pain tolerance in professional sports. Who are you to tell me how much pain I should be able to tolerate? And why are players being asked to play in pain? That's the bigger question. How about not ask players to play through debilitating pain? Because every injury really is a pain tolerance issue. You can break your arm and still play. Willis Reed played in an NBA Finals game on a broken leg. It's been done. We could just ask every player to play through all their broken bones 
It's a pain tolerance issue. That's all it is, really. Oh, that broken rib really hurts? Put on a vest. It's a pain tolerance issue. Jason Pierre-Paul should have been starting in week one of the 2015 season. It's just a pain tolerance issue. Oh, you're missing half your hand? It's a pain tolerance issue. That's all it is. You can play. You don't need fingers to play. Ronnie Lott cut his finger off during a game. It's been done. It's just a pain tolerance issue. Enough with the pain tolerance issue. Every time a coach or team doctor categorizes a player's injury as a pain tolerance issue, all members of the sporting public should be allowed to throw water balloons at that individual. Like, I wish we could engineer a spring-loaded cream pie to sit below the top panel of those podiums the coaches speak from. And when the words pain tolerance issue tumble from the coach's lips at that moment, the spring-loaded contraption should fire, hitting that coach in the face with a cream pie. But there's an easy way to solve this problem. If the player is unable to log a full practice on Friday, he shouldn't be able to play. The game day inactives should be released Friday evening, not Sunday morning. That would do a service to everyone. It would be a great convenience to all the fans of the sport that pay for the Red Zone channel, that buy tickets to the game, because they would know who's playing on Friday, not at the last minute. And most of those individuals have fantasy teams. And it would be a great convenience for those individuals to know who's playing on Friday, not Sunday morning. It would also enhance the ethics of the sport because the gambling public would know who's playing on Friday instead of the player's playing status being shrouded in secrecy right up until game time, which leaves a lot more time for people with inside information to place bets on games. You take that possibility away by releasing the inactives on Friday. Releasing inactives on Friday would negate the gamesmanship that coaches are tempted to employ in the days leading up to the game. The opposing coaches would know which players they need to game plan for during their Saturday and Sunday walkthroughs and meetings with players. And finally, the most important benefit by far, preventing players who can't get on the field on Friday from playing on Sunday, is the health of those players. The game day decision endangers the health of the players. Much more important than the disruption it causes the fantasy community, the advantage it may give to certain gamblers. The game day decision is a tool the coaches wield to coerce the players to play through pain, and it needs to be abolished for that reason alone. If your body can't participate in a practice with no pads on Friday, what business does that player have playing on Sunday? None. It's dangerous. So stop allowing the practice. Everybody wins when you abolish the game day decision and you release the inactives on Friday. Every single party and stakeholder benefits, nobody loses. It's a win, 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 win proposition. So do it. And this is all to say, I really hope Eddie Royal plays this weekend. I hope he practices on Friday, and I hope he plays in the game on Sunday. Because if Eddie Royal plays in the game against the Colts secondary, who is giving up an inordinate number of fantasy points to slot receivers, Eddie Royal is going to pay dividends for his fantasy owners. Damn it, I do like Eddie Royal. I feel bad saying that. Why do I feel bad saying that? Why do I feel like I'm not allowed to like Eddie Royal? 
So many people don't like Eddie Royal because Eddie Royal scores touchdowns while sitting on the waiver wire, and that makes and that for some reason enrages fantasy gamers. Matthew Barry gets unreasonably upset when John Kuhn scores a touchdown. Why? I have no idea. Allow John Kuhn to score a touchdown, Matthew Barry. Why is Matthew Barry begrudging John Kuhn's right to score touchdowns in his profession? I don't understand that. Just like I don't understand why anyone begrudges my right to like Eddie Royal. Eddie Royal's the little engine that could. We like the little engine that could archetype. Once upon a time, I liked Justin Forsett. Before he was overrated by consensus by the fantasy community, I was a Justin Forsett advocate because I like the little engine that could. I like the running back that was productive in college despite below average athleticism continuing to fight for an NFL roster spot, continuing to win opportunity at the NFL level and play out to age 30. I love the Justin Forsett story, just like I love the Eddie Royal story. But no one was running out last year and drafting Eddie Royal in the second round of fantasy leagues. But so many of you were running out and drafting Justin Forsett in the second round of fantasy leagues last year. A catastrophic mistake because you shouldn't be drafting running backs in the second round, first and foremost. And second of all, if you draft a running back in the second round, it shouldn't be a small, slow scat back with bad hands. One of the worst pieces of fantasy advice in the history of fantasy football was draft Justin Forsett in the second round in 2015. And now where is Justin Forsett? He's not on a team. The Baltimore Ravens appreciated my advice that they should cut Justin Forsett so much, they decided to cut him twice. There's a lot of bad fantasy analysis around Eddie Royal, and I don't understand it. And I found the worst, the crystallized tweet that represents the worst possible fantasy analysis. I saw it this week. Are you ready? Question. Should I start Eddie Royal or Robert Woods this week? The response from the fantasy analyst was, ironically, an analyst from Fantasy Pros, that fact is just magical, his response back was, Royal and PPR, Woods and Standard. What? Fantasy analysts are constantly innovating, constantly inventing new ways to say nothing. You can't even come up with a straightforward response to Eddie Royal or Robert Woods. You're that scared of saying anything useful. You're going to hide under the tired old player X in PPR, player Y in standard response. Just useless. Especially because Robert Woods and Eddie Royal play the same position. They play the slot flanker role. Neither one of them are prolific touchdown scorers. Both of them have a below average, average depth of target and yards per target and don't score many touchdowns. They're both possession receivers. So it's not like either one of them has a better chance than the other of scoring a touchdown on any given week. They're very similar players. So why make the PPR standard distinction? Well, I know why. Because you don't know. So just say you don't know then. Don't respond with Royal and PPR, Woods and Standard. That's so much worse than I don't know. Because you're camouflaging the fact you don't know with the least information humanly possible. It's unbelievable. But So that's why I'm here. To give you the definitive answer. The definitive answer is play Eddie Royal, not Robert Woods. That's the answer. If Eddie Royal is inactive, 
because he strained his calf, then play Robert Woods. Pretty straightforward decision. That's the answer. Now, if Eddie Royal doesn't play, there's a player I like even more than Robert Woods. His name is Cameron Meredith. Yes, Cameron Meredith. It's Cameron Meredith time. Oh, it is. Oh, it definitely is. It's absolutely Cameron Meredith time. I am so excited about Cameron Meredith this week. I've picked up Cameron Meredith in 10 different fantasy leagues throughout this week. In fact, in a handful of deep dynasty leagues, I already owned Cameron Meredith before Kevin White went down because I don't believe in Kevin White. I believe Cameron Meredith is a better football player than Kevin White. We had George Kritikos on the show earlier in the week. What did he say about wide receivers that were converted quarterbacks? They have a better feel for the game than the average late developing wide receiver. And it makes sense. A wide receiver who sees the game through a quarterback's eyes is going to be in the right place at the right time on the football field more often than not. It's one of the reasons why Julian Edelman's been so successful. It's one of the reasons why Terrell Pryor's been so successful after practicing the position for less than a year. And as soon as I read the news that Eddie Royal missed practice on Thursday, here comes the Roto World blurb on Cameron Meredith on schedule after I've already picked him up everywhere. According to Roto World, Cameron Meredith is expected to serve as the team's number two or number three wide receiver with Kevin White done for the season and Eddie Royal questionable to play in week five. Yes! 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 I can share something with you. I often sit here criticizing the fantasy analyst, even though I myself am a fantasy analyst. And I will tell you, the best feeling a fantasy analyst can have is to hit on a sleeper. It's the greatest feeling. Who were our sleepers coming into the season? In traditional leagues, it was Chris Hogan, it was Jermaine Curse. It was Robert Woods. Chris Hogan has yet to break out. Jermaine Curse has yet to break out. Robert Woods broke out last week, and he looks like he's going to be fantasy viable for the rest of the season. Not a great sleeper track record so far, except I also provided a deep league sleeper. The best value wide receiver in the later rounds in deeper leagues, Quincy Anunwa! Out of the park. Ask any baseball player, even the pitcher, what's the greatest feeling? Hitting a home run on the sweet spot of the bat. Quincy Anunwa. Quincy Anunwa. Quincy Anunwa. Sweet spot, baby. What could be better than being the only one talking about Quincy Anunwa and then hitting on Quincy Anunwa? Hitting on the deep, deep, deep league sleeper. Now, hitting on Quincy Anunwa, home run. If I hit on Cameron Meredith, <laughs> that's a grand slam. So I will be practicing fantasy wanting this Sunday because I desperately want Cameron Meredith to ascend. But when we look back, what was my case for buying Cameron Meredith? All those things remain true. An average college dominator, but a converted quarterback with above-average size and above-average athleticism. He just turned 24. As a converted quarterback, his development cycle has been slower than most, but he's technically younger than Kevin White. 
And by the end of this season, Cameron Meredith will have accrued more receptions, more yards, more touchdowns, more fantasy points than Kevin White. And six months from now, the debate will be who's a better fantasy asset, Cameron Meredith or Kevin White? We're six months from that conversation starting, but I'm telling you now, those conversations will be sparked because Cameron Meredith has a 1032 95th percentile catch radius on playerprofiler.com. And he may be ranked as high as he's going to be ranked all season on the playerprofiler.com weekly player rankings because he's facing the Indianapolis Colts this week. He's facing the Colts who struggle against opposing teams, number two and number three wide receivers. We love Eddie Royal this week if he plays. We love Cameron Meredith either way because Alshon Jeffrey will be occupying Vontae Davis. That means Cameron Meredith and Eddie Royal will likely be matched up with some combination of Patrick Robinson and Darius Butler and maybe even Daryl Morris. I don't know who Daryl Morris is, but Darius Butler strained his hamstring, and he's questionable to play on Sunday. Whoa! Whoa! I was excited about Cameron Meredith going all the way back to last year. Now give him that matchup? Whoa! You can tell I was excited about Cameron Meredith going all the way back to last year. Go to the Roto Underworld Radio YouTube channel and search for Cameron Meredith, and there you can listen to my preseason analysis of Cameron Meredith. We also have the Danny Woodhead eulogy posted on the Roto Underworld Highlight channel as well. But the comments on the YouTube channel are the best. You've already heard the podcast, so you're already familiar with the content, but you haven't read the comments yet. You need to go to the YouTube channel for the comments alone because I will spend hours putting together a highly produced, heartfelt eulogy, sending Danny Woodhead off into injured reserve. And what are the comments? How's Jordan Howard looking now, asshole? Those are the comments you get. You missed Matt Ryan last week. Why are you going out of your way to tell me this? Even though we recommended streaming Joe Flacco, who posted a QB one week in week four, and we had Blake Bortles and Derek Carr in the top 12, and they both returned QB one value in week four. No, you don't want to talk about that. You only want to talk about the fact that we missed Matt Ryan this year. Uh, Newsflash, run the breaking news. Everyone missed Matt Ryan this year. The number of fantasy analysts that ranked Matt Ryan number one in their 2015 player rankings equals zero. It's unbelievable. Internet commenters are hard to believe. But most of you that listen to this show via podcast... You appreciate the show. We have received precious little negative feedback via email. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com or on Twitter at rotounderworld. It's almost all been positive. And if you like the show, please go to iTunes and rate the show. Once in a while, someone stumbles across this show, doesn't understand what we're trying to do on this show, and gives it a one-star rating. That cripples our ability to be introduced to new listeners. So please go to iTunes rate the show. If you've already rated the show, grab your girlfriend or your wife's phone and rate the show from their phone. Please go to iTunes and from every account you can possibly gather, rate the show. And beyond that, go to playerprofiler.com forward slash podcasts and become an official minion. 
Just click the learn more button and contribute six to $8 per month to keep this show on the air. As the pod father, I know a lot of people that do podcasts and many of them have set up patron services. And they ask me, how many patrons do you have? And I'm embarrassed to tell them because it's less than a hundred. These people have thousands of patrons. I have less than a hundred. And yet our downloads are approaching 10,000 per show. And less than a hundred of you have signed up to become official members of the show community. And I don't understand this. When I embarrassingly share the low patronage numbers of this show, the response is, well, what are you doing to incentivize listeners to become members? And I say, we're giving away t-shirts and hoodies. And they say, what? You're doing what? We're not doing that much for listeners. Oh my gosh. We're reading their questions on air. Read their questions on air? Why the hell would I waste anyone's time with some cliche mail-it-in mailbag segment? That's not what my listeners want. They want to know what I think about players and situations and my perspective on other dynamics in the NFL. No one wants a mailbag segment from me. So that's not even a benefit. I'm giving away t-shirts. And these aren't just scratchy Hanes t-shirts made in China. No. These are American apparel, breathable cotton t-shirts made in Egypt. They cost over $30. I'm using the first six months of listener contributions to pay for the apparel that you're getting when you sign up. Think about that. That's an awful business model by me. Terrible. I'm giving back all the revenue from the first six months to those that sign up. Just a completely irrational business model. That's how aggressively I've incentivized members of this audience to sign up to become official minions or official buzzards, or we have a new category of listener, the official snitch, and we'll emblazon that on the shirt or hoodie. You want to be a buzzard? You get the buzzard designation. You want to be a minion? You get the minion designation. When I was in high school, I joined the Pearl Jam 10 Club. And anyone that joined the 10 Club in the 90s essentially is afforded front row tickets at any Pearl Jam concert. Here's the problem. I signed up in 1994, and then when I went to college, I was no longer getting the mailings, and I let my membership lapse. And now I no longer have seniority in the 10 Club, and I'm watching people in the front row enjoy the concert more than I am in my seats! So... The official Minion program is like the Pearl Jam 10 Club. You may think you love the show. You may tell people you love the show. You may tell me you love the show. But you don't actually love the show until you become an official member of the community. I have a list of the people that have signed up. Those are the people that appreciate this show. No one else does because everyone else is just a free rider. If I wanted to listen to Pearl Jam music in high school, I had to save money all week to go to Tower Records and pay $16 for a CD. Most of the money I made in high school went to buying CDs. So I don't care if you're in high school. I don't care if you're in college. If I can afford... $16 a week for music in the 90s, you can afford $6 a month to access the best fantasy football content in the history of podcasting. Okay, maybe not the best. At least give me top five because Fantasyland is incredible.
You want to put me behind Fantasyland? I'll accept that because the production quality of Fantasyland is unmatched. The people at Rotoviz, specifically Peter Overzet, put in more time than any of you can imagine into producing that show. And I vividly recall the show on predictions that Fantasyland released a couple months ago. What was the mantra that so many of the best fantasy analysts continued to repeat on that show? You have to go into the exercise of projecting players weekly, knowing you're going to be wrong. Going into it, you have to know you're going to be wrong. Our weekly projections on playerprofiler.com have beat even our own expectations this year, but we've been wrong plenty. And we expected to be the most wrong in weeks one through four. Because in weeks one through four, we don't have significant game data to leverage. And weeks three and four are even more difficult. At least in weeks one and two, we know what we don't know. We have nothing to go on except last year. In weeks three and four... We don't know what we know or what we don't know. We don't know what performances are real and what performances are a mirage. The first few weeks of the NFL season are a hall of mirrors. You have no idea what's real. That's why we don't officially evaluate our rankings until week six. We'd like to have at least five weeks of data before judging the rankings. The same is true for Las Vegas. The margin for error on Vegas lines significantly reduces after week five. But even through the first four weeks, we've made a number of contrarian projections that I'm proud of. Last week, we had A.J. Green ranked higher than anyone else. And this week, I have real questions about Alshon Jeffrey. If you just look at the target share numbers, you would expect Alshon Jeffrey to exceed 20 fantasy points in week five. But I'm not sure he can exceed 20 fantasy points matched up against Vontae Davis. Why? Because Vontae Davis has been targeted only four times through two games, and he's only allowed two receptions in those two games. Wow! Vontae Davis is allowing one reception per game. Think about that. Because when we grade cornerbacks, we're not just looking at how many passes they defend, we're looking at how often they're targeted and how many passes they defend when targeted. Quarterbacks are staying away from Vontae Davis, and when they do, opposing wide receivers have only a 50% catch rate. That's why I want Eddie Royal to be active so bad. And if the NFL were a more ethical place, we would know whether or not Eddie Royal is playing today, not Sunday. The efficiency of the opposing cornerback absolutely matters. You can't watch Xavier Rhodes smother Odell Beckham Jr. last week and not realize that CB wide receiver matchups matter a lot. But it's not the only input factor when projecting wide receiver performances every week. You see this all the time in fantasy football. A new data point is appreciated by the community, and because it's new, there's a rush to overweight it, to only look at that one new shiny metric. So we don't overweight. So our goal is not just to use the cornerback data that we're collecting now to project wide receiver performance. Our goal is to make sure we're not overweighting it and not only appreciate the opposing cornerback's efficiency, also appreciate what we don't know. We don't know the defensive scheme, but we can hypothesize it. We don't know the game flow, but we can hypothesize it. Will the defensive coordinator bracket the number one wide receiver and put his number one cornerback on the number two receiver? We see that often. 
How much garbage time is that wide receiver going to enjoy soaking up catches against a prevent defense? Last week, Allen Robinson was matched up with Vontae Davis frequently, but Vontae Davis wasn't covering Allen Robinson when Allen Robinson scored his touchdown. We don't know precisely how frequently a cornerback is going to match up on a particular receiver because we don't know the offensive game plan and we don't know the defensive game plan. How much will cornerback X line up on the right or the left? We don't actually know. Washington changed how they used Josh Norman on the fly. The assumptions you made about how Josh Norman would be used based on weeks one and two are now obsolete. Because look at Odell Beckham Jr.'s week three performance against Washington. Seven catches, 121 yards. Only half of that production came against Josh Norman. So just because a team's number one wide receiver is on the field and the opposing team's number one cornerback is on the field doesn't mean they'll be matching up. That's how Allen Robinson posts a fantasy viable week, quote unquote, against Vontae Davis. Because when he scored the touchdown, he wasn't actually matched up with Vontae Davis. We can't know how many snaps a cornerback is going to play against an opposing wide receiver. Now think about this. The offensive coordinators and the quarterbacks are also paying attention to the wide receiver cornerback matchups. So this Sunday, what do you think is going to happen when Brian Hoyer looks over and sees... Patrick Robinson or Darius Butler lined up opposite Alshon Jeffrey. Where do you think the ball is going on that play? It's going to go to Alshon Jeffrey. So even if Vontae Davis shadows Alshon Jeffrey for 80% of the plays, Alshon Jeffrey can post over 100 yards and a touchdown in 20% of the plays. He's not facing Vontae Davis. Think about it. It only takes one 50-yard bomb on a play Jeffrey is being covered by Patrick Robinson or Darius Butler to allow Alshon Jeffrey to return value in DFS and be a guy you wanted to start in all formats. Now, that all being said, I consider Alshon Jeffrey a stay away in cash games because of the presence of Vontae Davis. You don't want to start a player in cash if he needs to have a long touchdown in a small window of snaps. That's not how you win money in cash games. It's actually easy to identify which wide receivers to stay away from in cash because there are less than 10 cornerbacks that are in their prime who we know are capable of significantly throttling elite wide receivers. And Vontae Davis and Darius Slay and Richard Sherman just happen to be among the less than 10 cornerbacks who are capable. I say less than 10 now because we just lost Jason Verrett to a torn ACL after we lost Darrell Revis to Father Time. Darrell Rivas has been a flame torch of opposing wide receiver production this year. Darrell Rivas is number one in the NFL in receptions allowed to opposing wide receivers and receiving yards allowed to opposing wide receivers. Oh, that's why A.J. Green was the contrarian play of the week against Rivas two weeks ago. And that's also why we're playing Odell Beckham Jr. in all formats, particularly if Sam Shields is out this week. We talked earlier about why we're playing Sterling Shepard. All those reasons apply to Odell Beckham Jr. High scoring game against a soft secondary. Ding, 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 ding. It's not hard. Fantasy football's not hard. But if you want to zoom out and forecast Odell Beckham Jr.'s fantasy output for the full season, I'm lower on Odell Beckham Jr. across a full season than many other fantasy analysts. Why is that? Because while his target share of 25.7 is only one and a half percentage points lower than it was last year, 
I believe the presence of Victor Cruz and Sterling Shepard will inevitably dampen Odell Beckham Jr.'s weekly opportunity. It has to. Last year, he was sharing a field with Ruben Randall and Dwayne Harris. Sterling Shepard is only getting better. Victor Cruz is only getting more confident in his health. Odell Beckham Jr. is sharing a field with two above-average wide receivers. That's not the path to a top-five fantasy wide receiver season. It's just not. A.J. Green's going to be a top-five wide receiver because he's sharing a field with Brandon LaFell. And Julio Jones is sharing a field with Mohamed Sanu and Taylor Gabriel. Again, this is not a hard formula to implement. It's not a hard equation to run in your head. I'm not buying Odell Beckham Jr. at his current price in redraft, but I'm sure as hell playing him in daily this week. Just like I'm playing Deshaun Jackson because Deshaun Jackson is matched up against Sharice Wright and company. Sharice Wright, the cornerback that brought you the Michael Crabtree three touchdown game. Yay! Thank you, Sharice. Give it up for Sharice Wright, everybody. Woo! Thank you! Michael Crabtree, the most prolific wide receiver in the history of college football and the true number one wide receiver for the Oakland Raiders. So Deshaun Jackson absolutely receives a friendly cornerback premium this week. We have Deshaun Jackson as a top 20 play this week. He's ranked ahead of DeAndre Hopkins. Check out the rankings. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. So I like to offer my cornerback wide receiver matchup analysis on Friday, not on Tuesday, because you see a lot of this ex post facto playing the results. I stayed away from Brandon Cooks the last two weeks. Look at those cornerbacks he was being matched up against. Well, here's the problem. We didn't know how good those cornerbacks were after one week. So your reasons for staying away from a certain player in week two and three is just reverse engineered result playing. Yes, after four weeks, we could appreciate Jason Verrett in a way we couldn't after one week. And now, unfortunately, Jason Verrett is out for the year. We know now a lot more heading into week five than we did heading into week two and three. That's why I can take more time and more confidently talk about the weekly rankings and projections on this show and the cornerback data that the Roto Underworld game analyst team is collecting. And I'm so appreciative of, of the great work that the game analyst team is doing. That information will start to show up on playerprofiler.com. Might not be next week, might not be next month, but eventually we will start to identify the cornerback a wide receiver is most likely to match up against and relevant efficiency metrics for that cornerback. Because we as a collective have come to the understanding that winning the wide receiver position is really all that matters. It's how you win a million dollars on DraftKings and FanDuel. Zero RB is how you win your redraft league. We are here now and we'll be here six months from now to help you win the wide receiver position.